welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Hall, and she is the Chief of Data Science and the Co-Director of the Institute for Precision Cardiovascular Medicine, and that is at the American Heart Association. She leads the association's groundbreaking initiatives in cardiovascular medicine by leveraging data analysis, new technologies, and strategic alliances to fulfill the promise of precision medicine. So in this one, we talk about technology, we talk about research, we talk about the Institute's new platform, well, platform as a service, where researchers can go on and use a virtual workspace and utilize all the power that the American and data, in fact, that the American Heart Association has. So yeah, I learned a heck of a lot in this one. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Jen, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Well, it must be this morning for you. Uh, I am doing fine. Thanks, James, and thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Jen? I'm speaking to you from gorgeous Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we only get to say that a few days out of the year. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a real pleasure. Being being able to talk about good days a few days a year is uh, it sound it's reminiscent of being English and being British because I think we've had our summer now we had our few days and now it's just chucking it down with rain. Um, they're trying to do a tennis tournament in Wimbledon at the moment. I think they're struggling. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, great to have you here, Jen. Really looking forward to the conversation. Um, I'm really interested. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to our listeners hearing about your background, which I know is super fascinating leading up to where you are now. And so, yeah, it'd be great for you to uh, tell us a bit of your story. Uh, I'm happy to. I um, received my PhD um, many, many years ago from University of California at Berkeley. And at that time, you know, when you when you do that, you do a, a research project or a dissertation. And I had the good fortune of being able to do that at Roche uh, within industry, uh, basically. And that gave me really good insight into the differences between academia and industry. And I, I'd say that was, um, you know, really fortunate um, for me to be able to see the differences between those. Um, and at the time after that, then I um, did a postdoc at Stanford um, that advanced what I was doing really in heart failure and different areas of, of heart failure um, and moved into vascular biology and more uh, molecular biology and more genetics and then went on to um, Harvard, the Brigham and Women's Hospital there under the direction in both locations of Dr. Gary Gibbons. And so I, I owe such a great deal um, to him and um, a lot of my friends and colleagues there. And then did a lot of work in the area of genomics, genetics, molecular biology. And a lot landed um, my first assistant professor position with Dr. Gibbons at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, uh, where they set up a new um, cardiovascular center of excellence there. And so that was a really great opportunity uh, to get my first grants, to meet some wonderful colleagues there, some wonderful students, some of the best students I ever had there. And then moved on to the University of Minnesota. I'm from the Midwest. And so it was great to come back to family. We're starting our family about then. And um, worked here, one of the first Lola High um, 
fellows here as an assistant uh, professor starting out my career. And um, my dean at the time was a woman, Deborah Powell. And fortunately for me, I saw this vision of continual learning, sabbatical, gave me the opportunity with being a mother of three kids to be able to go to the Broad Institute and work there for five years and pick up a lot of data science and more computational um, understanding of science, basically. Yeah. And, and that I will always um, just be grateful for the mentors that I've had throughout my career. So having that in coordination with the learnings that I had at the University of Minnesota, um, my kids grew up and I have volunteered for many organizations throughout my career. One of those was the American Heart Association and um, their CEO, Nancy Brown, um, asked me to come in and lead their Institute for Precision Cardiovascular Medicine. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. What a, what a great opportunity. And, and that has led me to a lot of um, new opportunities and challenges in the areas of building technology. What do researchers need today to really advance uh, science, um, getting access to data, putting things together in the same place to make things a lot simpler and a lot easier. And, and so that's really what my role is today. It's like bringing together all my collaborations from the past, bringing together the research and the understanding of data science that I have a little bit of understanding. I never claim to know much because I don't. The, the field moves so quickly. And then working with terrific um, business collaborators like we we have in the field that help us um, align and move forward quickly it's a wonderful story and I think it's it's really interesting how decisions that you make sort of through your career can end up giving you skills and giving you contacts that you can end up coming around to and bringing together later on in your career and things like that I think it's I think it's interesting that like I was speaking to, in fact, one of the clients that we're working with at the moment is in cell and gene therapy. And mm-hmm. it's it's a new advancing field of, of medicine. There are people being cured of things like leukemia now by taking cells from the body, sort of weaponizing them against cancer and then putting them back into the body. And it's it's such a new field. And yet there is a there's a degree that you can do at UCL at the moment, which is specifically in cell and gene therapy with specific things about manufacturing and, and things like that, which are the big challenges. Mm-hmm. And there are these young kids making these decisions now to go into a field like that, knowing that it's going to be part of the future. I think my question here would be, with the things that you were leaning into, genomics, genetics, molecular biology, was that because you were you were interested in the science? Was there part of you that was like, this is where the big breakthroughs are going to be? This is where I'm going to do some really great work. I mean, what was what was your decision making around picking those elements specifically? I, I really like the direction that you're headed because it, sometimes things come together for so many different reasons. And you're yeah. absolutely right that students today have. Yeah you know, five or 10 or 15 years ago, we thought we spent all these hours strategizing and having coffee, thinking about like, how would we ever do that? Should we set that up? 
and and you think for a, a, a mere second that you're the only one thinking about it. <laughs> yet, yet that that's definitely not what's happening because then it becomes this reality and it moves along so quickly. And I think from my point of view, getting into those fields was from this tunnel vision of a scientist saying, I really need to answer this question. So for me, it was moving into vascular biology because I needed to, I had this need, desire to answer this question around vascular biology and I didn't have the tools. And some of those tools weren't even there. You know, you, you were asking this question and it seemed so esoteric to people that you had to go search out the people that were doing it in the lab and start to really riff on how to do that or how you would think about like single cell sequencing. Mm -hmm. Like how would, how would we do that? And how would that fit in? And, you know, and then you go, well, I can't answer that full question. Now I need to understand the genetics. And then you finally get to a point where you're like, I can't be an expert. I can't even come close to being an expert in all these things. And so how do you, bring everybody together to collaborate and bring this data together. And so you feel like you get the full picture. So instead of publishing, you know, what one-off, another one-off about a single little component of how that fits into the big picture, you can bring all this data together and all these collaborators together to go, oh, now we think we understand one-fifth of this versus one one-hundredth, right? And, and it adds people then from the outside, um, when you disseminate a story like that, that, that makes people really excited. Yeah. Right. And, and then you bring more people into the field and you educate them and then they go, yes, I really want to get involved. I think the interesting thing there for me is that fundamentally that's what science is all about. That's what scientists do. They, they are inquisitive. They have mm -hmm. a question and they try and either prove or disprove a theory based on that question. And, and so I think that just that fundamental awe and wonder of finding the answers to those questions is clearly what's driven you forwards into what you do now. And it's funny because I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs on, on this podcast and they have a similar inquisitive I was going to say nature, it's more of often an obsession that they, they are so inquisitive mm -hmm. and they're so obsessed about finding out the answer to a particular question that they, they just, particularly the ones for academia, that they end up with a business because they have just followed that route so far down to a point where, okay, I might have a scientific answer, but now I need an impact answer. And so to make the impact, I need to set up this thing called a, it's called a company. And then that allows me mm -hmm. to get this funding. And then it allows me to put it into this. And it's, it's a lot more kind of, a, I suppose, structured and logical way to, to end up in entrepreneurship and solving a problem. But I think where I was going with it, with that was I was told once by somebody that if you, if you want to get the most done in a day, follow your energy. Don't, don't have an idea of what you, you should get done in a day. Follow where your energy is. And, and big picture, you'll end up doing a heck of a lot more because if you've got energy all day to spend doing this, that, and the other, why don't you actually go and do that and see where that goes? And I suppose it's part of that whole 
adage of doubling down on what you're good at, focusing on your strengths, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and you end up um, somewhere where it's extremely interesting to you and it's extremely valuable to you and you end up making a lot of impact. And it strikes me that that's essentially where you've ended up here, you know, and, and, and there, it's, it's one of the coolest titles. Um, I think that, we, that we've had on this podcast, you know, chief of data science and precision cardiovascular medicine. I'm super interested in what you define as precision cardiovascular medicine. You've mentioned that you're, you're involved with uh, technology and research, lots of different things to do with uh, data and, and other things. I'm interested in, in all of that. So tell me more. Well, I want to just step back a minute and say that that really struck me when you said follow your energy, because I think there's so much truth in that, because, you, you know, through throughout your life, um, you run into people that you, you come home from work and, and they say, did you cross everything off your list today? And the people that you're talking about, like scientists and, and entrepreneurs, they go, that does not fit my day. Like we are not the crossing things off our list. And, and I think it is just this follow your energy sort of passion and you get to the end of the road. And when you realize that that academic career or that academic environment is not going to fit the next phase of where you need to go, right. Then that's, yeah. that's, that's okay. It, it, why do we restrict ourselves to these boundaries? So I think that's lesson number one for me, like looking back and, and thinking about the way you're thinking about it to follow your energy. And my parents, my father always said, you know, words are just words and, and titles are just titles, Jen. You, you always have to do the work and, and action things. And so I never get caught up in, in titles and, Frankly, those are titles that my CEO comes up with and says, this is good, Jen, this is what you should be. Because then people like um, me are like, oh, that's cool. You should come on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why she's better at it than I am. Um, but, you know, they, they stood up this Institute for Precision Cardiovascular Medicine, and it was and continues to be extremely successful because that name, you know, Precision is in medicine is the right treatment at the right time for the right person. And the cancer field has always been way ahead of us, frankly. You know, you can think they, and I don't know if you agree with that as, as a clinician, but mm -hmm. um, I think they have access to the tissues. You know, they, it's easy if there's a tumor, you can um, pull that out usually and, and sequence it and, and get scientific information from that. It's a lot harder when you're talking about the heart and you're talking about vascular tissue and um, understanding all those. Now, that's not the only reason we're behind. We're behind for several reasons, but we're beginning to catch up. And so I think for, for the reason that we realized there was a significant gap, um, that was first the reason for, for setting it up. And secondly, we were able to attract many of the world's best data scientists into this field. And our organization, uh, the American Heart Association, had been lacking 
in bringing computational people, data scientists into the field. And maybe cardiovascular science had been lacking in general as we talked to others, you know, the European Society of Cardiology, British Heart Foundation, um, National Institute of Health, they were all trying hard. Um, I, I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues um, across all of those organizations, but we did have several conversations amongst us privately and um, felt that we were trying to do everything we can to recruit young data scientists into this field. And we were able to bring fund over 90 of the world's best um, with over $30 million that have resulted in over 400 great publications which is one measure of success academically, right? That you disseminate the information in great journals like Nature, Nature Medicine, Cell. But the other thing is that what is so unique about it is that these individuals helped us create a platform in the cloud, the Precision Medicine Platform, which stands on top of AWS which is a platform as a service, basically. So you come, you bring your data, you can access data from anywhere, the tools are there, and everything is in one place, the researchers, the tools, the data. And these researchers helped us build out the user interfaces that they wanted and they needed to make it simple. And so all of a sudden it was simple to get access to data. Things that took years in the past, literally years to get access to, could be opened up within days or weeks. And they could collaborate securely with their colleagues around the world, write code in real time and share that code with each other, standardize big data sets with millions of de-identified records and publish that. And so that was game changing. I, I think um, for us to be able to collaborate with Hitachi who helped us do the architecture and the security and all of the important things, um, the infrastructure behind it. And we provided the researcher experience, which, you know, if you don't get that right, nobody's going to come and use it. I think it's an interesting word that infrastructure, when, when you talk about, platform as a service you know 30 million dollars 90 data scientists 400 publications you've built this platform in the cloud which acts as platform as a service it's hard to involve blah, blah, blah. then when you say infrastructure it all starts to make sense to me because at the end of the day i think when we talk about new technologies or ai algorithms right or anything that's going to be built upon data what yeah. we need is solid infrastructure. It's going to be 5G quite shortly that's going to enable robotics across international boundaries for surgeons, one place, two place, another. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, though, you can only build for as good as your infrastructure allows. It sounds to me that the value of what we've done here, pretty much like you told that story, the sort of the 30 million 90 day data scientists, 400 publications is secondary to the fact that actually what you've built here is platform as a service where everyone is right there, where so many more individuals, organizations will be able to create so much more on the back of the infrastructure that's been built. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, it is. You know, it's kind of got this academic flavor to it where it's, you know, come in, give us your feedback. Yeah. In 
but in an environment, in an ecosystem, in an infrastructure, like you're saying, that is amenable to change, right? It's not this leaning tower of Pisa that is not going to adapt to and is, yeah. you know, just rigid. rigid it's yeah. agile and flexible. And as things change and adapt, let's say you have an AI algorithm for image analysis. It just keeps getting better and better and better because we have more and more researchers using it. They, there's some people working on the back end, bringing more and more images to make it more of a robust image analysis program across different, you know, ethnicities, races, ages, you name it. And then there's individuals on the front end, like now there's a degree for students right in this area of web interface right? User interface, which that was never a thing before, but now yeah. it's a very important thing that if your clinicians, you know, they're seeing a radiologist, they can't interface with the tool. It doesn't, doesn't matter how good it is. doesn't matter how robust it is. Yeah. It's got to have that user interface. And so you've got people on both sides working it. It really gels and it really comes together. So practically speaking then, this platform allows researchers to drive the fields forward because they can essentially use it because as you say everything's right there for them can you talk me through then for and there will be academic researchers listening there'll be entrepreneurs listening there'll be people in various health tech companies listening Practically speaking, then, how does one go about using it? What's the journey through using that platform? Yeah, um, really simply, you just Google or put in your search engine, right? <laughs> Precision.heart.org and spell heart, H-E-A-R-T. And that just gets you to the, the, the login page to register. For an account and that's free and that allows you to just search around and see what's up you can see the data you can you know get a workspace and that is is pretty user friendly if you have questions you, there's a link there you can ask for questions but once you have a workspace um then it's pretty simple you upload data to that workspace and that workspace is nothing more than you and I, you know, seeing each other over Zoom today on what is my outdated MacBook Air or whatever <laughs> laptop you have or desktop computer. It is exactly that linked to the cloud with the computational power of the cloud. So for those that have not moved into cloud computing, all this is, is a lens basically into something that's connected to the cloud and it looks like a C drive or some kind of drive where you can put all your notebooks and store everything in a really organized way. And you work in what's called a Jupyter notebook, which looks like a word HTML file, basically. Sure. And you upload your data into that. If you do not understand how to code, we have tutorials and tutorials are nothing more than plug and play code where for some data sets that we have, you say, 
take this code. And then it literally says, take this code, drag it into your notebook and it will, and push play. And that will then create a table for you and show you how to upload the data. It shows you how to make a table of the descriptive statistics and it can walk you through how to do things. If you know how to code in R and Python um, or R Studio or use you know, tools like that, it's a little bit more simple, um, I would say, but th that's the basic tool. So you go to precision.heart.org, take a look around. If you wanna um, log in or get a workspace, you can request that right there. We can answer any questions that you have and that is how you get going and then you have the power of your data, if you bring your data to the cloud, you can bring data that we have available for you into your secure workspace. Nobody else has access to that workspace. We have all the tools that you need in that workspace. So our studio, our, you can bring your own tools as well. So that, that, that means you don't have to keep updating your licenses every year with just all there for you. And then the computational power is all there too. So you're not working off the computational power of your Olympia wimpy laptop, you're working off the computational power of cloud. So running large genetic, you know, sort of work on your laptop or standardizing, harmonizing big data sets happens in hours, not days. Wow. So who's it for then? It's literally for any researcher that wants to go in and start a workspace, right? Yeah, it is. For, I mean, we have clients that are across private, you know, industry groups like pharma. Um, we work with a lot of academic groups um, that we work with a lot of nonprofits. We work with nonprofits that have um, de-identified data that they want to get out into the public domain as well, that, you know, in a safe and secure way. So that's another piece that the precision medicine platform allows is that we have a way to distribute your data in a safe and secure way because we put it in you know people that have access if they're an authorized user or let's say james you have a data set from yeah. your nonprofit that you want you know it's all de-identified there's no patient identifiers on it and you would like to give that to some researchers at University of College London. Mm -hmm. You put that on the precision medicine platform and people that want access to that um, go through us, go through a machine learning algorithm, just answer a couple questions. Those questions come to you and you as the owner of that data make the decision of whether they have access or not. And, and the questions are really like, what, what would you like to answer scientifically? And, and so to make sure there's no overlap with other work that's being done on that data set, because you are the data owner. Maybe they want to collaborate with you on something. Maybe they want you as a co-author. Simple questions, mm -hmm. you know, that you can ask them back and forth. And then within days, they may, you may govern them access to that data. We drop it into their workspace. And it's, and it's done. And so wow. it, it also acts as a way for data distribution in a safe and secure way. And you can feel safe because they are unable to download that data once it's in the workspace. 
So in the past, you know, with all these systems, they would go through years and years of data governance. Should we, should we not give access to these people? But then they would give them access in an Excel file over email. I mean, you can think of a million reasons why that is is not so secure, right? It it almost sounds, it's almost like a no-code solution, isn't it? It's sort of like... The, the early days of websites where you'd have to code have then been superseded by all the no-code solutions of just drag and drop to form a website. It, it feels to me almost like that. It's almost yeah. like the next iteration because why should you have to be, you know, fluent in Python in order to, as a researcher, be able to answer your questions if, if you're the one that's skilled at data collection and putting the study together? You know, it makes no sense that you'd need all of that stuff. Right. It, seems, it seems like you're cutting that out. You're almost cutting out... It, well, your, your street well has the potential to do a heck of a lot of streamlining for those that are, mm-hmm. that, that are collecting the data, uh, if I've understood that correctly. That's right. And to enable and accelerate the science. And so because yeah. you as the data owner, like in that old example, um, you know the data best, right? And yeah. so the key is to get you hooked up to somebody who might be able to do some things that Maybe you don't know how to do at this current stage, but the platform also enables all of you together to, you know, the code is like automatic. Almost. Mm. Like the tutorials, our team can come in and help, right? You know, the tutorials, boom, it's, it's done. And the computational power allows it to, to happen mm. very quickly. And we want to be able to link the data owner with the collaborators in in that documentation side otherwise something gets lost it's like the book becomes the movie and (laughs) you you see the movie and you read the book and you're like wait a minute yeah or or it's it's another example of the translation right there's a translator in the room you understand both languages and you're like the translator really got that wrong because they don't have the nuance of a variable, the way it was collected. And that is really critical for science. Mm. You've got to have that. Yeah, that nuance is interesting. And that's the value of keeping people in the loop. I, we, we've had a lot of a lot of people on this podcast recently. Um, it seems to be like an emerging trend where no longer is pure tech in health tech seemingly good enough. Um, and yes, mm-hmm. there, are, there are obviously some examples, I guess, somewhere. But... At the end of the day, healthcare, as it sounds like research is, fundamentally involves people because of that nuance, because of the ability to, to people to connect with people, people to seemingly connect with data and actually understand everything that's going on. And so particularly when you're then across crossing different skills to use that data, keeping people in the loop allows that rich nuance to come through, which is really interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels there with, with almost like the health tech world and, and the entrepreneurs that we've had on. And, and because keeping people in the loop, yes, if you look at unit economics and you look at, you know, how scalable is this, you know, sticking the odd person in can really change those numbers, not often for the, for the better. However, when you look mm-hmm. at quality and you look at accuracy and you look at the, the benefits down the line, often keeping people in the loop pays back a heck of a lot more than taking them out and having things pure tech. Um, but yeah, it seems that way. seems that way for what you're doing. One question I did have that I'd like to move on to is 
A word that you've mentioned a lot is safety. I think when it comes to data science and it comes to the the technologies that will come out of this platform and the conclusions that will come out of this this platform, as well as the processes within it, how that data is looked mm-hmm. after, where that data is moved to. You've talked about who gets to see what. You've talked about giving people essentially keys to certain data and not to others. You know, it seems that safety is very much at the forefront of your mind when you're thinking about and talking about this platform. Is that a conscious thing? Is 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 that number one in terms of the way this is built and the way this is managed? It. It's always at the forefront. It, it starts every conversation, I would say, that we have. And that's because we, we think of it, um, one thing that has always grounded us and was a great lesson for me in the very beginning is, is a mentor that said, always think through the lens of the individual in the study. And that's how we always start those conversations is, okay, let's imagine we were an individual in this study. Now, in, you know, how would we want to make sure all of this data was protected? At the current time, you know, we don't accept any patient identifiers in any of our data. Mm. So, so that keeps things really much, much simpler and the ability to re-identify people. We, we go to great lengths to make sure that doesn't happen. We are working on areas like tokenization, um, which brings data sets together to build richer data sets without patient identifiers, you know, linking data sets. Um, other ways to do that in secure ways, encryption. Um, we are you know, HIPAA compliant, of course. You know, we follow the rules and regs in terms of we're FISMA low certified. So we have all of these checks and balances in place um, that Hitachi brings to the table for us. We collaborate with NIH on a lot of those things. We work on, um, you know, there's a, security and privacy are two separate issues, but there's a fine balance between those, as you know, and maintaining a user experience that welcoming right because if you put on all these security and um kind of restraints the ability for the user in the workspace becomes very complicated absolutely and and so it is really a challenge to do security in a way that is um behind the scenes right yeah so everybody feels protected but nobody feels yeah constrained yeah because that no code solution that you've you know eloquently explained it's it's all it all sounds nicely in the background which as you say ui ux is extremely important because when you talk about you know the the most secure the most private the safest way of doing things is that going to make the most impact if it's impossible to use? Well, arguably not mm-hmm. because people aren't going to use it and therefore, so there's always a, a slight trade-off or a balance or a way of doing it that you need to innovate in order in order to do that, which is extremely important. Um, before we wrap up, Jenna, I just wanted to ask you one more question. And sure. it's, 
I suppose on the flip side of security and privacy and safety, on the on the other side, I suppose there's there's what what excites you. We talked earlier about following your energy, right? So if you have an hour on the train, or if you have some time to watch a, a YouTube video, or indeed a different video platform that has more intelligent things on it than than some of YouTube. Um, what what are you reading about? What are you watching? What are the most exciting areas of research for you at the moment? I know you've been uh, like editor of a journal and you've done lots of things in, as, you, as we talked about genetics and mm-hmm. different things. I mean, where's your interest and excitement at the moment when it comes to research? Where where do you find your your energy and, att- and attention gravitating to at the moment? Um, a, a couple of areas, I would say. Um, in a very big way, it's always trying to close the loop. And what I mean by that is, you know, so we can create all this innovation on the front end and, and make things easier to use, but to see it move to, you know, actually lend to a major scientific discovery that changes patient lives. That is what we're always trying to get to, right? How do we close that loop? So if we make a change in the AI algorithm, and then we improve the user interface and then a clinician is able to use that to boom, you know, so that, how do we tell that story and how do we make sure that that's happening? And the flip side of that is, is how do we get a sense immediately quicker when that's not happening? So we can get in there and fix that. The other thing that is really exciting me today is, um, this interface between food and medicine. Interesting. So this and the microbiome. Okay. Mm. So how, you know, today we think that we have such a good handle on food and calories and that's how we think of it. You know, we think of it as calories and now there's some things that think about things in terms of uh, the proportion of the macros yeah the mac right how does that weigh in with with cardiovascular health Mm -hmm. and there's no people have not figured that out there's a lot of dissension in that field but if you took foods and you actually broke them down by mass spectrometry and look protein by protein and then you knew and you could say well this apple in this field or this variety with this level of pollution in the air, right? Boy, that just blows my mind. Like how does that affect exposure and then your microbiome? How does that affect your cardiovascular health? I mean, we don't have, we frankly don't have any idea of that. Metabolomics, proteomics, microbiome. How are all those things working together in, in what we roughly call now somewhat loosely social determinants of health, right? Yeah. That we say, oh, you're in this um, highly, you know, sort of is in the zip code that is giving you exposure to X, Y, and Z. Well, how does that affect? We're, we're, we still haven't linked that scientifically with not to say it's all scientific, you know, so there's a lot of other things socially that are going on there that we have to link in as well. Um, we just started there. Yeah. And do you, do you know people in that area of research that are, that are starting to do that? 
Yeah, we're thinking about that. Um, nice. We're, we're lucky in that way um, to start thinking about that. And so we're, we're beginning to spend some time there. Awesome. Follow that energy, Jen. Awesome. <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Learning about what you're doing, I think a, a no-code solution that allows people to go and crunch their data in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's safe, and in a way that creates impact. I can't think of, a, of anything arguably more valuable than that in health tech right now. I think the ability to, to go and create new technologies and, and to do that research with, as you say, so many of those other problems solved. So the people that are very good at the research can just focus on the research. I, honestly, I just think it's it's such such a useful um, and and certainly will be a very impactful um, innovation in our space. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for coming on um, and for everyone at the American Heart Association for what they're doing. Um, I think what you guys are doing is awesome. So thank you so much. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or indeed the American Heart Association, what's the best way for them to do so? I, I guess maybe just an email to me is, is fine, James. Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R dot Paul, H-A-L-L at heart, H-E-A-R-T dot org. Great. And we'll put the link to that email in the description of this episode. So Jen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Um, I'm a, a new follower of your podcast. Thing, <laughs> so <laughs> Thanks so much. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media. So you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.